Hey, everybody, this is Brian Zond. Welcome to my sermon podcast. Now, before we get into the sermon, though, I want to tell you that I have a live in-person prayer school coming up Friday night, Saturday morning, November 3rd and 4th. So if you can be with us, we would love to have you for prayer school in the upper room right here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, Friday night, Saturday morning, November 3rd and 4th. And then if you want, you can stay around for Sunday. That's our anniversary Sunday. We're celebrating 42 years here at Word of Life. So to register, it's it's registration for a donation of any amount. Go to wolc.com slash prayer school for the in-person prayer school November 3rd and 4th. All right. Uh, One more time. Good morning to everybody in person and online. Uh, well, this morning, I want to preach, I mean, with this, with this play coming up next weekend, I want to preach, All Shall Be Well, The Life and Revelations of Julian of Norwich. Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This verse, Psalm 27, 4, with its aspiration to live in the house of the Lord all the days of your life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, to inquire in his temple. This verse is apropos to the life of the famous medieval mystic, Julian of Norwich. Now, the medieval mystics, these these are people that had direct encounters with God, direct experience with the divine. That's what we mean by mystic. And these medieval mystics are a rich source of revelation whose writings continue to speak to us. They They are probably more popular than they've ever been, which is, I find that Interesting. I find that significant that the writings of the medieval mystics are more popular than they've ever been. I'm talking about people like Hildegard von Bingen, uh, Meister Eckhart, Catherine of Siena, Thomas Akempis, Teresa of Avila. She, she was a mystic that had some sense of humor. I like Teresa of Avila. John of the Cross, Marjorie Kemp, and... Of course, probably the greatest of them all, Julian of Norwich. Now, Lady Julian was born around the year 1342. That's probably pretty accurate. 1342 in Norwich, England, which is 40 miles northeast of London. And at some point in her life, she became an anchoress. You say, what is an anchoress? Well, I will tell you. This, this is something that happened in the, in the medieval church from time to time. That is, she lived in a cell or a couple of rooms attached to the church. So she, she had a window into the church and she had a window out to the world. And she lived the rest of her life there in prayer and contemplation. She became known, she became famous, and people would travel from far and wide to seek her prayers and to seek her counsel, Julian of Norwich, an anchoress, 
Um, she wrote a book. I mean, she was literally living out this. I'm going to read this again. One thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. I mean, most of us would take that metaphorically, you know, to have this strong impulse towards God. But, you know, she took it literally. And, and she lived out the rest of her days, kind of like Anna in the, uh, in the New Testament, who was attached to the temple. This is Julian of Norwich. And she, we're going to learn about this, but she wrote a book, Revelations of Divine Love. This is the first book written by a woman in English. Uh, yeah, the first book in the English language written by a woman. Uh, the, the, in case you want to know, the, the version I'm using, because there's all kinds of different edits and versions, but I'm using Revelations of Divine Love by Mother Julian of Norwich, edited by Halcyon Backhouse and Rona Pipe, and forward by Jeremy Bigby. This is, this is the one I recommend, by the way, if you're going to read this book. And so she, she wrote this book. Now, Julian lived um, not during... An idyllic time. I mean, you might think, oh, she was this contemplative. She's this mystic and everything's just kind of, you know, she just gets to live in church and everything's easy and wonderful. And so she has these revelations. No, this is not the case. Not the case at all. Uh, Julian lived during the 14th century in Europe. This is one of the most difficult and tumultuous times in all of human history. If you were just going to pick a time to live, you would not pick 14th century Europe. This is the time of the Black Death. The bubonic plague, which swept through Europe, killing up to half of the people. And of course, a sudden loss of half the population leads to all kinds of social unrest. And during this time, you also had the Peasants' Revolt, which pushed England right to the very brink of anarchy and total social collapse. And so she's living through a very, very difficult time. Um, she lived during this time of great uncertainty and deep suffering. And when she was about 30 years old, this is probably, we don't know for sure, but probably before she was an anchoress, before she was attached to the church in that way. Um, when she was 30 years old, she prayed for three things. Number one, to understand the sufferings of, of Jesus. This is very characteristic of medieval spirituality. In the medieval period, there was a great emphasis on meditating, contemplating the passion, the suffering of Jesus. This was central to medieval spirituality. The second thing she prayed for was to suffer herself to the very edge of death. This is an unusual prayer. You probably have not prayed this prayer. But uh, Julian prayed that she, she, wanted, she didn't want to die, but she wanted to go right up to the edge of death. Not die. But she wanted to enter into the sufferings of Jesus to the extent that she went to the very brink of death. She prayed for this. The third thing she prayed for was to receive three wounds. I bet you haven't prayed that one either. <laughs> wounds. I put those in quotes because these were the wounds she prayed for. True sorrow for sin, true compassion, and unshakable longing for God. Well, these are wounds in the sense that Julian wanted her life to be marked. Marked by true sorrow for sin, true compassion, and unshakable longing for God. So when she's 30, she's praying for that. She's praying that 
you know, she might understand the sufferings of Jesus and suffer herself to the very edge of death and receive these wounds. A year and a half later, age 31 and a half, she tells us, Julian, in fact, fell gravely ill. Had she contracted the bubonic plague? Uh, we don't know, perhaps. Well, eventually, she was very ill, and for three days and three nights, she was near death, just hovering right there between life and death, and the priest was called for on the fourth day. And she was given last rites, and the priest held in front of her, this is, in, this is significant, held in front of Julian as she's on her deathbed, holds a large crucifix depicting Christ's suffering upon the cross. Now, on the fourth day of her, we would say today, near-death experience, on May 8, 1373, for five hours, between the hours of 4 a.m. and 9 a.m., she received 15, she calls them showings, visions. We generally today translate it as, or understand it as revelations. But she calls them showings. So for five hours, as she's in this liminal space between life and death, she's kind of transported, is no longer aware of her pain and her suffering and her illness, and has these series of five, 15 showings or visions. On the fifth day, she had a 16th and final revelation or showing or vision, and then, and then she recovered. 20 years later, I think this is significant, she didn't set out to tell everybody about what she saw and experienced and received from the Lord during that time immediately. In fact, she waited 20 years. 20 years later, now an anchoress, now age 51, she wrote her 16 showings in Revelations of Divine Love. I think almost certainly the most popular book of mystic Christianity ever produced. Now each of the 16 revelations had some connection with the sufferings of Christ that she saw in the crucifix. Each, each of these were somehow connected with how Christ suffered for us upon the cross. And allow me this morning to give you an introduction to the revelations of divine love given to us by Lady Julian of Norwich. In the first revelation, Julian says this. The Lord gave me a spiritual understanding of the warm friendliness of his love. I saw that he is everything which is good and comfortable. He is our clothing. Out of love, he wraps us around, fastens the clasp, and enfolds us in his love so that he will never leave us. I saw that he is everything that is good for us. Now, one of the most common themes of all Christian mystics, uh, they all speak of this, is the absolute love that God has for his children. So remember, she's living in a time when there's great suffering abounding all around her. And Julian wants people to know that God loves them. She wants people to know that no matter what happens, they are wrapped up in God's love. No matter how hard it is right now, the arms of God's love are always around you. Or she describes it as God putting 
a cloak around you and clasping it and holding you in his love. Do you find comfort in that? Now, in the paintings and icons of Julian, she's almost always shown holding a cat and a hazelnut. The cat, because she kept a cat in her cell. And the hazelnut, well, what about the hazelnut? Well, this comes from the first revelation as well. She writes, the Lord showed me a tiny thing, no bigger than a hazelnut, lying in the palm of his hand. I looked at it, puzzled, and thought, what is it? The answer came, it is everything that is made. I wondered how it could survive. It was so small. Then I was answered, it exists now and always because God loves it. Thus I understood that everything exists through the love of God. In this small thing, I saw three truths. God made it, God loves it, God keeps it. Maker, lover, keeper. Now I know know some details, some statistics that Lady Julian of Norwich wouldn't have known. But that hazelnut, what is it? It's everything. That's... That's two trillion galaxies consisting of 200 billion trillion stars. That's our cosmos. And it's like a hazelnut <laughs> lying in the hand of God. Do you find comfort in it? I do. We have this vast, this vast universe. So much more vast than a medieval person could understand. Well, that's more vast than we can understand, but at least we know it's, it's really something. <laughs> 200 or 2 trillion galaxies with 200 billion trillion, or the actual number is sextillion stars. But it all just lies in the hand of God like a hazelnut. And everything that is made is made because God is In the beginning, God said, let there be, but why? Why? God had no need. The Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist without any need, except perhaps this need, the need to express love, the need to love. And so the love bursts beyond the bounds of the Holy Trinity, that family of eternal love, and it bursts forth in the form of let there be light. And so all things that are made have their origin in the love of God. That's where we come from. We come from the love of God. Now, one of the peculiarities of Julian's revelation is her regular reference to Mother Jesus, (laughs) which, by the way, did produced some consternation among the priests of that time. That she would often in her writings and in her speaking speak of Mother Jesus, Mother Jesus. Well, here's here's her defense to this. This is in the 10th revelation, so I've jumped all the way to the 10th revelation. I don't have time to give you the whole book today. This is just an introduction. In the 10th revelation, Julian writes, when our essential being was made, the second person of the Trinity was our natural mother. In him, we are rooted and grounded because he took our physical nature. 
He is also our mother out of mercy. The human mother suckles her child with her own milk and with the utmost tender kindness, our beloved mother Jesus feeds us with himself through the blessed sacrament, which is life's precious food. All right, so Jesus is the matrix of the new humanity. It's in Christ that humanity is made again, prepared for eternal life. And so if Jesus is the matrix of humanity, then then Julian is, is compelled to, from time to time, speak of Mother Jesus. And then she shifts and she says, well, you know, it's like, it's like you know, how a mother nourishes a child from her own body. And so Jesus also nourishes us with his own flesh. Jesus said it this way, and the bread that I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. So in the blessed sacrament, Jesus is like a mother giving us his own life from his own self. And then she goes on and says this. The human mother puts her child tenderly to her breast. And our tender mother Jesus leads us intimately into his blessed breast through the sweet open wound in his side. And there gives us a glimpse of the Godhead and the joy of heaven. Now, let me, let me just... Stop here a second. I know this sounds strange to you. That's because you're a modern. And we don't talk like this. We preach, you know, seven points to a more productive life. You know, very, very pragmatic, but it can, it can become pretty sterile after a while. And I'm not saying that all things medieval are superior to all things modern. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying there is value. There was a particular treasure that the medieval church was a custodian of that we can benefit from hearing about. I like this kind of language. I'm going to read it again. The human mother puts her child tenderly to her breast. And our tender mother Jesus leads us intimately into his blessed breast through the sweet open wound in his side. Remember, she's, she's gazing during these visions. A priest is holding a crucifix in front of her, and she sees the wounds of Christ. Mother Jesus leads us intimately into his blessed breast through the sweet open wound in his side, and there gives us a glimpse of the Godhead and the joy of heaven. I would say it this way. The pierced side of Jesus gives us a glimpse, a window into the heart of God. And in the heart of God, we find no anger. Julian says this. Throughout the revelation, I felt I had to recognize and accept that we are sinners and that consequently we deserve God's anger. Yet in spite of this, I actually saw that our Lord was never angry, nor ever will be, for he is God. Goodness, life, truth, love, and peace. His purity and wholeness do not allow him to be angry. I saw that anger is contrary to the nature of his power, his wisdom, and his goodness. God is nothing but goodness, and that goodness cannot be angry. Indeed, if God were angry, even for a moment, we could never live. We should simply cease to be. The only anger I saw was in man himself. And God has forgiven that. 
Such anger is nothing less than a perverse opposition to peace and love. Now, Julian's daring claim that there is no anger in God may sound provocative to some of you. You think, well, I, I can find verses in the Bible that seem to contradict that. Well, so can I. But it's also solid orthodox theology that the church has long embraced. The church fathers insisted that God is immutable. That is, God doesn't change. He doesn't mutate. God is immutable and God is impassable, meaning that God is not acted on by passions. We are acted upon by passions, but God is not. And they insisted upon that, and therefore the church fathers said that God is neither moved to anger or by anger. Rather, the wrath of God is a metaphor for divine consent to the self-destructiveness of sin. There are consequences. There are consequences. If, if we go against the grain of love, if we go against that, there are consequences that we will suffer. Metaphorically, the Bible calls that the wrath of God. But theologically, the earliest church theologian said, no, God is not angry because God cannot be moved to anger or moved by anger and God does not change. Well, this is all very good theology. I, I like it that she notes that um, the only anger I saw was in man himself. And God has forgiven that. If we literalize the anger of God, what we are doing is actually projecting our anger onto God. That's how we get an angry, retributive, violent God. We are actually projecting our anger, our violence, our retribution upon God. This is where you come up with sinners in the hands of an angry God, and I deal with this in my book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. All right, let's go to the 13th. This is the famous one. There are these 16 revelations. But the most famous is the 13th. And so let's, let's have a... In fact, this is the most famous passage in all of the book. I had often wondered why God in his wisdom could not have prevented the origin of sin. For if he had, I thought... By the way, let's pause right. Have any of you ever wondered about things like this? How come it all went wrong? I had often wondered why God in his wisdom could not have prevented the origin of sin. For if he had, I thought, then all would have been well. But Jesus answered me with these words. Sin is necessary. I, I, think, I think that sh should be understood as inevitable. I think that's what is int intended there. Sin is inevitable. I mean, once, once we have that kind of freedom of authentic being, wrong choices will be made. Sin is inevitable or necessary, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It is true that sin is the cause of all this pain, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Hey, you've heard me quote that like a few hundred times. I, I can't, these days I can't hardly preach without saying that line. You say, well, yeah, but that's, that's just Julian saying that Jesus said that. I get it. But the church has also had over 600 years to vet it. The church has been thinking about this for over 600 years. And the best theologians I know all say, I, I believe exactly what she's saying. 
and I do too. This is the most famous quote associated with Julian and revelations of divine love. And I believe every word of it. In fact, it's none other than what, G, than what Paul says in Romans 8, 28, that God is able to cause all things to work together for good. God is not the cause of all things, but God is able to cause all things to work together. for God's able to take every strand, every thread and weave it into a tapestry of grace so that at the end we'll say it's beautiful and all things have been made well. Yeah, I would praise the Lord. And this is also the Acts 3.21, the restoration of all things that the apostle Peter talks about, the apocatosis, the setting right of all that has gone wrong. And this ultimately is our only theodicy, really, as Christians. Theodicy is the attempt to, to address the problem of pain. We say that God is good, God is great, God is loving, but bad things happen. How do we respond? Well, I think our only response is twofold. One, Christ suffers with us. We don't suffer alone. Christ has entered into, God in Christ has entered into suffering with us. And two, the story's not yet been all told. And in the end, all shall be well. And all shall be well. And all manner of things shall be well. There are going to be, he, in the book of Revelation, we hear the one upon the throne saying, Behold, I make all things new, and all things shall be made well. She goes on in the 13th Revelation and says this. In this way, the Lord answered all the questions and doubts that I could raise. Very comfortingly, he said to me, I may make all things well. I can make all things well. I will make all things well. And I shall make all things well. You will see it for yourself that all manner of things shall be well. Four modal verbs. I may, I can, I will, I shall. Jesus says, I may make all things well. Meaning, I am permitted to make all things well. The Father has given that to me. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be made well. Jesus says, I may make all things well. I have permission to do that. I can make all things well, meaning not only am I permitted to make all things well, I am able to do it. The world will be saved because Jesus is the Savior of the world. He can I may make all things well. I'm permitted. I can make all things well. I'm able. I will make all things well, meaning I am willing to make all things well. The leper said to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus said, guess what? I am willing. Be clean. And he was healed. I mean, it does no good if he may and can, but isn't willing. But he is one. I, I, I may make all things well. I have permission. I can make all things well. I will make all things well because I'm willing to do it. I shall make all things well. That's the promise. That's a promise. That's Jesus. I, I, I may because I have permission. I can because I'm able. I'm willing because I'm willing. And I promise I shall make all things well. That's the gospel. That's good news. Let's go to the 16th revelation. In the 16th revelation, Julian writes, some of us believe that God is almighty and may do everything and that he has all wisdom and can do everything, 
but that he is all love and wishes to do everything, there we stop short. It is this ignorance that hinders most of God's lovers. Well, Julian is saying nothing more than what John the Elder said. 1 John 4, 16. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Do you know and believe the love that God has for you? It'll change everything. It'll change your life. It'll change your perspective. So we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We may begin with fear, but we don't reach perfection there. We, be, we are perfected in love and perfect love casts out all fear. We love, that is, we love God because he first loved us. God is all love. God is all love. Every attribute, every expression of God is just a facet of God's love. God is all love. Again, in the 16th revelation, our kind Lord also showed me very powerfully and with no shadow of a doubt that his love never ends and never changes and that through his great goodness, our souls shall never ever be cut off from his love. Well, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 and Romans 8, two of his most famous passages. 1 Corinthians 13, 8, Paul says, love never ends. There is no end to the love of God. If you thought, well, we can exhaust, we'll get to the end. God's not, God says, I, I love no more. No, love never ends. And we will never be cut off from that love. Paul says in Romans 8, I'm persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, hallelujah. And now this is how the book ends. This is, this, is the, this is the conclusion. Revelations of Divine Love by Julian of Norwich. I saw with absolute certainty that before God made us, he loved us. And that his love never slackened, nor ever will. In this love, he has done all his works. In this love, he has made all things for our benefit. And in this love, we shall live forever. Because of our creation, we had a beginning. But the love with which he made us never had a beginning. It was in this love that we had our beginning. All this we shall see in God forevermore. We had our beginning in God's love. We are destined for God's love. And in the final end, God's love will prevail over all things. And in the end, God shall be all in all. Amen and praise the Lord.
stand up with me? We're getting ready to come to the table of the Lord where, dare I say it, Mother Jesus is going to feed us his flesh and blood. Before I do that, I just want to say one more time. Um, you have an opportunity. We're just, we're just lucky here at Word of Life Church. As Bob Dylan said, I can't help it if I'm lucky. <laughs> we're lucky here at Word of Life Church. Well, we can say blessed, but lucky's sometimes true too. And you have an opportunity to see Julian of Norwich just come to life. I mean, we, we, we booked Julian of Norwich. All right? Coming all the way from England, all the way from the 14th century to be in the upper room Friday night, 7 p.m., Saturday night, 7 p.m. Next Sunday, we'll see what you can do. As you come to church, go to lunch, come back for the 2 p.m. matinee and meet Julian and Norwich in the upper room. Tickets are $15. You can get them online. The, we can't put it online. The production the, the, is not online. It's, it's, it, we can't. It's not possible. It, we, we're not allowed to. Jesus said, I can't. I mean, we have to say, I can't. I, we, we're not permitted. <laughs> So you can purchase tickets online, or if you need help with that, out in the foyer, there's a table. You go by there and say, ah, I want to go to this thing. I want to purchase a ticket. Help me do that. And they'll help you do that. All right, enough of that commercial. Although it's a, it's a commercial given to you for your benefit. I'm just trying to help you. You're going to love this. But now we come to the table where Jesus gives us his own life and the, and the bread that I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. So let's come to the table. Let's do so in preparation by first confessing our faith and then confessing our sins and receiving pardon. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious because he loves mercy. He delights in mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for that mercy. So I tell you in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been here often and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. 
It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. Amen.